Welcome to Language Made Difficult, an uproarious part of the Specram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center hosted via satellite uplink from Atacaria in Veracruz. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Sherry Wells Jensen. Hi there. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And Bill Sproul. Hey. So let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. As you would expect, I have three language-related items. Two are true and one is false, and you guys have to figure out what's what and which is which. So this time we have a wonderful topic, which you're all going to love so much, and that is silly claims. That's always silly claims every single time. I want a new topic. (laughs) Uh, These claims are extra silly. (laughs) I expect there to be complaints afterwards, but here we go. (laughs) Item number one, Gerhard Schmidt claimed that the brain converts light waves into sound waves and that strong light leads to, quote, full sounding vowels and a lack of light gives, quote, weak sounding vowels. Item number two, Rupert Geiger claimed that blood types affect language, with the B blood type correlating with tonal languages and the A blood type correlating with agglutination. Item number three, T. Kluge claimed that only humans and birds sing because we have two legs and that humans talk because we don't have wings. Wow. <laughs> Who'd like to go first? And that's answering the question, not complaining about them. <laughs> oh, well, never mind then. Okay, I'll go first. I was a little bit too dazed even to speak there for a moment, but I'm recovering. <laughs> I, I think I can make sentences again. Okay, so the first one is too dumb not to be true, if you can follow my logic. <laughs> Besides, more people whisper at night than they do there during the day, and I'm pretty sure he probably meant some kind of diachronic thing, but he probably wasn't thinking about it that carefully, so he might have meant synchronic too. And besides, it's just too dumb not to be true. So I'm thinking, if you whisper in the dark, that's weak fouls. So I'm thinking, someone could have made that up. Number three is very poetic and lovely. I like that. And number two sounds like a biologist trying to do linguistics, which is really trending stuff. You know, all the economists and the physicists and stuff, really, because linguistics is so fun, they want to do it. And that's exactly why I think Trey made it up. So I think two is the most plausible, and therefore, I'm going to say that it's one that's not true. Okay. But now I know how to think like Trey. This is the total think like Trey guess. Trey doesn't like it when we try to think like him. (laughs) It does decrease my score. (laughs) Go ahead, Keith. Well, I'm going to agree with Sherry this time. I think it's the first time. I think this one about Geiger claiming that blood types affect language, the claim is so bogus that not even a scientist would make it. Is this the Geiger counter Geiger? Anyway, it sounds like a scientist. Sounds like a bogus claim. I think it's false. The other ones, so humans and birds sing because we have two legs. Not only does that sound like a real claim, but I think it's probably actually true. And then the other one I had a little complaint about, but I still think that somebody claimed it. I think what you meant to say was not that strong light leads to full-sounding vowels, but that strong light leads to ejective consonants. I'm pretty sure I read about this just recently (laughs) in the press. And I know this because strong light makes me sneeze, and I'm pretty sure that's where ejective consonants actually come from. So this is totally plausible, and I think it's true that he claimed it. Brilliant. You're exactly right, Keith. Good job. (laughs) All right, Bill, make it a clean sweep. One problem here is that we were not told that any of these people were linguists. I mean, it's just like a person named this (laughs) claims this. These were your neighbors, weren't they, Trey? (laughs) (laughs) He just went around the neighborhood and asked people, tell me something about language. (laughs) I'd live down the street from an insane asylum. (laughs) When I'm approaching the questions, I have to adopt the assumption that these could have been recorded statements, but not by linguists. So the the, the sort of, does that sound crazy for a linguist? 
you know, we already had the hypothesis about biology, but they might not even be scientists. Number one, the parts making me suspicious is that I would expect someone to argue that the brain converts sound waves into light waves because that's kind of an appealing notion there. On the other hand, I have noticed as I've gotten older that people don't pronounce vowels as well when I cannot see their lips move. And I'm thinking this might have something to do with light because you can't see people's lips move when there's not much light. He's so much more logical than the rest of us. Yeah, he's being too careful. (laughs) Number two, even though that's incredibly crazy, there's a long history of saying incredibly crazy things about blood types. (laughs) So number two is possible. Number three, it's got that Aristotelian thing going for it with the featherless biped stuff. What's making me really suspicious? Did you say the guy's name was Kluga? I did. Which... If that's just a G, that could be Cluj, right? Yes. Now I'm stuck in this kind of Princess Bride thing where it's like, did he put the poison in this one? No, you knew that I would know that you knew that. (laughs) Trey putting in someone named Cluj is like, that seems like something Trey would do because it's funny, but he knows that we might think it's funny. So this one has me in kind of like this uncollapsing Heisenberg thing for trainus for that one. I am going to say the wrong one's number one because I'm thinking that anybody making an idiotic claim like that would make a reverse idiotic claim. Wow. Okay. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> okay, Trey. Since we don't know what Bill means either, just give us the bad news. You actually poisoned all three of these and took an antidote, didn't you? <laughs> Well, and if you could follow any of that logic, extra points. <laughs> so it turns out that T. Kluga is a real person. <laughs> I did think that his name would make you think of Kluge and would make you think that I had made that up. <laughs> Fiendish. Fiendish. <laughs> but he really did make this claim. In 1955, in fact, in a journal called Orbis, which is at least now appears to be a journal of international relations and foreign policy. <laughs> It started in 1955, so this was like the fourth one. And I guess they were they were just hard up. It was a journal of inter-avian relations at the time. Yeah, something strange. It turns out that the other correct one, which is number one, <laughs> was, was also published in that same journal. <laughs> in that same issue. Oh, man. Yeah. Don't mind. That's a keeper. Both of these were reviewed in a book, Dear to Our Hearts from 1971 called The Problem of Nonsense Linguistics. Oh, that's wonderful. Wow. Yeah. Do you have this book? I do not. Oh. But I may need to get myself a copy. Yeah. T. Kluga there. Uh, the reason he didn't have a first name is because I can't recover it, so I don't know what it is. He also claimed that clicks are produced by letting air into low-pressure cavities, including not only the mouth, but also various joints in your body. <laughs> I have a hypothesis at this moment, unless that was like the official fluoridation issue of Orbis or something, as it was the 50s. There was a science fiction magazine named Orbit, and I'm wondering if there was kind of like a submission error. So our fellow Schmidt there, who thought light waves were converted into sound waves, 
He also made a link between the fact that many languages have seven vowels to the fact that there are seven colors of the rainbow. <gasps> oh, that's my goodness. That's, that's seven full vowels, right? <laughs> Not seven long ones. I guess, yeah. <laughs> In the light. That's right. <laughs> I want these articles. <laughs> they must be available online somewhere. They are not. It was they're extremely hard to find any reference to it all. <laughs> they have been excising it from the catalog. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you're thinking about all the the important elements of human knowledge that need to be shared on the internet <laughs> from the 50s, I don't think these made it high on the list. <laughs> and Rupert Geiger was not, as far as I know, is not the person who invented the Geiger counter because I just made up his name. <laughs> oh. Oh. The other two were German, so I went for a, a German-sounding name. Well, thanks for making up such a convincing one. That was that was the key to solving that that puzzle. <sighs> hey, I doubled my score. You did. So you have two out of eight now. Woo-hoo. Sherry's four out of six. And I'm four out of eight, so I think that puts Sherry ahead of me. And Bill is five out of eight. Everybody's doing pretty well, except for Keith. Except for me. (laughs) I was willing to believe that people would say almost anything stupid about blood types. (laughs) You know, I had to be very careful. I had originally chosen some other things, (laughs) and then turned out people have actually said them. (laughs) But nobody that I could find had linked blood type to languages. I actually tried pretty hard. You know, there are tonal languages, at least well-known tonal languages in in East Asia where the B blood type is common and the Inuit have more of the A blood type. So you made this claim. That's what you're telling us. I'm not actually claiming this. (laughs) I will point out that there is a very, very weak correlation between these things, but I don't think there's actually anything meaningful going on there. Inuit is polysynthetic. Okay. There you go. It doesn't. Match. I didn't think Inuit was actually a language. Well, Inupiaq or Inuktitut. They're Inuktitut, all polysynthetic. Yeah. All right, Bill. So, what's the difference between polysynthetic and agglutinating? Quick. Smush. Smush. <laughs> you said shh. Smush. I said smush. It's how much the morphemes. Smush. Smush. Yeah, that is the best one-word answer ever. <laughs> Next time we do comprehensive exam question makers. Why don't you give these answers on the exam questions? (laughs) Agglutinative languages are like Legos. You click on more Legos. They just fit together and you can take them back apart. With polysynthetic languages, you click one Lego onto the other Lego and you get an onion. (laughs) They're like ice cream. Click one Lego to the other Lego and then melt them with a blowtorch. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because it's still easier to tell the two sides apart from that. But you know how in Latin, for example, the suffixes on nouns, that suffix isn't just that it's nominative. It also means plural, right? Or singular. So it's multiple things at the same time. Right. Well, polysynthetic languages, a lot of the morphemes trigger lots of morphophonological changes in each other, you know, that sort of thing. So you can't pull them apart as easily. Smoosh. Yeah, they smoosh. (laughs) To put it more professionally, the form of each of the morphemes is causally determined by a much larger set of the morphemes around it. I'm insulted. What's unprofessional about smoosh? I wrote that down. (laughs) That's my definition now. That's it. I was going to use that in class tomorrow. <laughs> I can't even remember what you just said. <laughs> and there we have the fundamental problem with linguistics. <laughs> 
sounded scientific, but is completely unmemorable. It's therefore difficult to attack. <laughs> but it would sound great if they wrote it down and in answer to one of my questions, I'd have to go, ooh, ooh. I'd have to award points per syllable again, like I sometimes do. <laughs> Orthographic syllables, or do you read it out loud and then, you know? <laughs> you have to proclaim it. One must step to a public area, preferably oh, okay. with a balcony, and lean over and, and proclaim to the people, the morphosyntactic variation of the stem is influenced just so and so and. <laughs> <laughs> See, we have all kinds of fun in Bowling Green. <laughs> <laughs> and they still allow you into the public square? <laughs> I'm not saying. <laughs> they do make me do phone calls after dark with people, you know. I don't... Things are changing. <laughs> Oral exams have to be done in a faux British accent. If you're at a place. <laughs> it's named after Bowling Green. It makes perfect sense. I really am going to insist on that from now on. We are setting up a new master's degree program, and I think I'm going to write right in there. I think I'm going to do this just to see if somebody takes it out or if they just kind of let it go because they don't understand why I would have said it. <laughs> You're talking about the people, everyone, or only the questioners or only the candidate have to use Golly, I don't know. I would have to seek advice on that point. I, I don't know. Now you put a bullet point in that starts with, the candidate will demonstrate critical thinking skills by... <laughs> answering questions with a passable PBS British accent. <laughs> like, and you're thinking nobody will read beyond the first uh, phrase. Because it, it fits their expectations up until that point, right? Mm. If I bury that on page six, I'm quite certain it will get right through. Just use verbs from Bloom's taxonomy and you're fine. <laughs> As long as I spell it all correctly, if I spell any of the words wrong, they'll come after me with a hot fork. But if I, I can say anything I want. Content is not nearly as important as form. Form. Use comprehension, not understanding. Why? Apparently, the word understanding is taboo to various tribes of bureaucrats. I don't know. <laughs> I really need a list because I really would like this paperwork to just sail merrily through. So I'm, t I'm taking notes here. <laughs> just get Bill to write it. He's very good at this stuff. Ooh, good idea. What are you doing on your summer vacation, Bill? You want to write some green sheets and some blue sheets and some <laughs> <laughs> expandable PDFs? and Any goldenrod sheets. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, just cool colors to keep us all calm. So I don't know where to go from here, but... <laughs> I think it's time for a word from our sponsors. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by The Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics, a true labor of love, with a bit more emphasis on the labor part, from the editors of Specgram. Truly, the human cost of producing this essential volume is well nigh incalculable. We lost eight or nine interns just from the team dedicated to bringing the editor's green tea. I say eight or nine because the exact number's hard to remember. When you know you're going to lose so many, it's best not to give them individual names. On a more positive note, the book itself is an enormous, luxurious, tenure-sized 8.5 by 11 inches, which the metric interns assure us is several meters in each dimension, and contains over 150 articles and other items spanning 25 years of Specgram history. Visit specgram.com book and order your copy today. Welcome back to the Specgram podcast, where we have a couple more pieces of linguistic news for you. 
all of the most important sort, I'm sure. These stories are a little bit disturbing to me, and the first one comes, and I probably should translate this or leave it in French when I say it, but I'm going to translate it in English just on principle. The General Commission on Terminology and Neologism, perhaps that's what that translates to. The French have determined that the hashtag, or should we say the hashtag, is a banned, prohibited, <laughs> no longer allowed in the language at all. It's got something to do with the purity of French, I'm guessing, and they have suggested a substitute that we are or they are or any French speaker is to use, which I won't read in French because I'm guessing we're not supposed to mix languages anymore. I think that's probably part of what's going on here. So I won't contaminate the English with the French. I'll just do like my daughter likes and keep the food separate and we'll just keep the languages <laughs> separate because I think that's what's going on here, right? The same kind of thing occurred in the Quebec Language Police, which I love this. Their abbreviation is O-Q-L-F, which I'm guessing is a Klingon word, Oklaf. <laughs> But I can't say that because, again, we're mixing languages and we can't let our languages touch one another because that's not allowed. Claims that there is too much Italian in the menu for the Italian restaurant. That's too much Italian language. It contains too many Italian words. And they were demanding French translations for things on the Italian menu. So this is in response to written complaints. They do not say in which language the complaints were written and filed. So I guess that's, <laughs> it's up to you to figure out. And the hashtag that circulated on Twitter was PastaGate, which I thought was okay, except that I wasn't sure if pasta in this case is an Italian word or a French word or an American word. And so I was a little bit concerned even about that. But the idea behind these two events has to do, I think, with language purity. And I think there's a lot of different ways to spin this. And I think my take on it is going to be that regardless of the language, it's being taken over by small children who don't want their things to touch other things lest they become sullied and entangled and catch the flavor <laughs> of other things. And I'm thinking that this is a good thing because the French being such humble and docile people will then, of course, want to rid French words from other languages as well. So I think this might be a harbinger of world linguistic peace and beautiful things to come. I could be wrong about that, so I thought maybe I would see what you guys thought. So the translation of the new French word for hashtag is sharp word, and I want to have a few sharp words with the French. They need to loosen up a bit. Isn't France supposed to be home to gay Paris? They shouldn't get their knickers in a knot over this kind of stuff, because letting in new words and not worrying about purity hasn't really been bad for English. It's a global lingua franca. English has a reputation for not just borrowing words, but following other languages down dark alleys to beat them unconscious and rifle through their pockets for loose vocabulary. I never understood this. And the Italian menu thing is crazy. Of all the places in the entire world that you shouldn't get upset about there being words in another language would be in a restaurant from that country. To be fair, they did say they overreacted just a tiny little bit to the whole Italian menu <sighs> thing. But that they did anything at all. I got a question. Is it anti-prescriptivism or meta-prescriptivism if you object to prescriptivist pronouncements and laws like this? So are we being prescriptivist about their prescriptivism? In which case, it's meta-prescriptivism? Yes. Okay. It's counter-prescriptivism. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of like we could do a little arms race of prescriptivism and then they could react to our reaction to their reaction and it could just become this big thing. <laughs> And then we'd be fully in the post-prescriptivist phase. Oh, right. <laughs> right. It all just kind of becomes mm -hmm. irony. 
<laughs> My feeling about the Quebec situation. Now, I'm an American, right? So I can only read this through American eyes. And, you know, to me, this seemed perfectly natural because if this had been in America, you know that the Italian restaurant could totally be sued for, for example, serving meat to a vegetarian who didn't happen to read Italian well or something like this. And so the lawyers are the ones buying this. They are trying to prevent restaurant owners from being sued because of customers who don't understand their menus. So I think that's just basic public safety. So you're saying I can finance my next trip through Europe by just eating wrong things and then filing lawsuits as I go? <laughs> no, no, you can only that's do that awesome. in America. Oh, that's less exciting. But but <laughs> but Canada is nearby, so you can try it there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might, I might. I would notice a kind of pragmatic issue that now that this incident has occurred in Quebec, restaurants have a very easy way to avoid being fined or anything for this, which is that it sounded like they were doing it based on the number of words in each language on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It did sound like, actually, yeah. You print a nice big selection from Voltaire on the back of the menu. <laughs> it's a good thing anyway. I mean, Voltaire's fun to read. It's not going to hurt anybody. Right? <laughs> there will then be more French words proportionally on the menu. <laughs> and you're fine. So that settles that problem. You know what? A variation on that would actually be incredibly useful would be to have a glossary where you have one word in Italian, like calamari or whatever, and then you'd have a little short description in French of what it actually was. Then the French words would outnumber the Italian words 10 to 1 there. I mean, oddly, they said that that was already on the menu. <laughs> so... And the disadvantage to that is, like, do you really want to know what some of that stuff is? Because, like, I really don't. You know, <laughs> I don't want to eat it, I'm pretty sure, and I don't really want to think about what it is that other people are eating either, some of those things they eat. So, I, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know. There's advice to people who go to New Orleans and you find something you like that you eat. You ask what it's called, but don't ask what it is. <laughs> yeah. With the French rulemaking about the hashtag, I think it's also important to ask how much they expect that to carry weight. I don't know the actual situation, but it's possible that these people are in the same position as some of the makers of English usage guides, where it's yeah, you can make a pronouncement about this, but everyone's going to ignore it. You know everyone's going to ignore it. Your job is to make that kind of pronouncement. So, <laughs> you know, if it's being put forth as, we think this is a better term to use than the one you're using, and everyone kind of nods and says, yes, we have performed the ritual of acknowledging that you have done your job, and then ignores it, then it's not that big a deal. I think the French, at least like the government agencies and stuff, have to take this stuff seriously, these pronouncements. I mean, obviously, you can't really police, you know, people's speech in the streets. Is this the academy that made the pronouncement? It doesn't say that. It's, it's, uh, Is there anyone else? It's a particular office, they did, but maybe it's yeah, under the a, academy. Yeah. The people in the academy, the full members, are called immortals <laughs> and <laughs> uniforms with braids. They're telling you not to take it seriously. Do you think maybe it's an inside job? Like it's a group of people working from within to try to destroy the Academy by making really, really silly pronouncements that everyone will ignore. I think they're just trying to be helpful because they make these pronouncements and then people like us get sort of exercised because this sounds ridiculous. 
which they already know. And then they're sitting around one day and it's like, okay, we can't use the HTML tag with the slash and the sarcasm thing because that's not in French either. <laughs> so we'll make up uniforms and call ourselves immortals. And if that doesn't let them know what's going on, nothing really will. So I have just done some quick research and the Commission on General Terminology and Neologism works with the Academy. And I also looked up real quick the fact that Bill was not making up the bit about the immortals. <laughs> and he's, he's not? He's not. Horrifyingly, that seems to be true. Find a picture. They have uniforms. I wonder if what's really going on here with the Academy and this particular general commission is that they're actually deliberately trying to enrich the French language by promoting the use of these terms. And the best way they can think of to do that is to make a big public fuss about them and call attention to them. So wait, they're promoting hashtag or the... the Yeah, they want people to use the term hashtag. And uh, they figure the best way to do that is to give it a whole bunch of publicity. And they know that this will generate publicity. Mm. So this is an effective way to do it. So it's a reverse psychology operation here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All their children have become like 12 now. And so they know how to handle this, right? They know what to do. That's right. They have small children, a medium-sized children. And they know that if you want to get them to not eat their peas, you tell them you're not allowed to eat peas. I mean, you want to get them to eat their peas. What do you, how does this work? You, <laughs> you tell them they're not allowed to eat peas. You're a great parent, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> eat peas. Don't eat peas. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've said all there is to say about uh, the problem. <laughs> And now, another word from our sponsor. For decades, Speculative Grammarian has been the premier scholarly journal featuring research in the neglected field of satirical linguistics. And now it is available in book form. Introducing the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics. We wish we were kidding, but no, seriously, we've published a large collection of Specgram articles, along with just enough new material to force obsessive collectors and fans to buy it, regardless of the cost. Despite this fact, we aren't really charging that much for the thing. Just $12.99. Metric pricing in pounds or euros is available as well and has been provided by the metric interns. Visit specgram.com slash book and order your copy today. Contents packaged by wit, not volume. Some steadily may occur during shipping. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, we Ling nerds have gotten a little tired of being overly polite all the time, and we've decided it's time to take off the gloves and really tell you what we really think about some things. So today we're going to talk about our least favorite subdisciplines in linguistics. And I guess I'll go first. I think my least favorite subdiscipline in linguistics among the many worthy candidates is phonology. I mean, frankly, as best I can tell, phonology is only utterly and entirely about abstraction. Now, I know that there's lots of abstraction in other subdisciplines. The syntacticians like it too, but there's enough going on in syntax that occasionally syntacticians get drawn back to actual data and actual languages. But as far as I can tell, phonological systems are so horribly impoverished that any bit of abstraction takes us so far away from language that there's nothing left. And phonologists aren't happy with just a little bit of abstraction. That's all they want. So I really feel like phonology just sort of throws out the data with the bathwater and leaves itself with only the soap scum. And and by that, I mean the abstractions. So that's my beef with phonology. Huh. I think that's why I like phonology. I like (laughs) abstractions. (laughs) Well, you can have it. (laughs) 
the good thing about phonology is that you can say almost anything as long as you've got the little picture of the pointy finger. That's still what you need, right? Is the picture <laughs> of the pointy finger? I think it's the pointy finger still. Yeah, but that's you know, someday it? it's going to be yeah. something else, right? Yeah, I hope so. Because that's, you know, we're tired of the pointy finger. But I do like the pointy finger. They're very um, well, iconic of something. <laughs> well, it would work better if you had the pointy finger that comes out of a little outline cloud. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of positions the model relative to you. <laughs> a little bit more theological. <laughs> So uh, what about you guys? What's your least favorite subdiscipline? For me, it's kind of a tough call. On the one hand, I've always felt like semantics is the chemistry of linguistics and that everything seems arbitrary and made up and you just have to memorize stuff. It doesn't really make sense, but it all kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of squishy and uh, I'm willing to accept that whatever makes me, you know, like phonology makes me bad at semantics. Because, <laughs> you know, rules and stuff. I like that. On the other hand, as sort of a sociology of linguistics level, the whole field of syntax irks me to no end. There's no reason why I should get all the glory, and it seems like syntax is nothing but a big theory mill. Let's make a new theory and then reanalyze all the phenomena that we've already had descriptively adequate understanding of for the last hundred years. <laughs> so I don't like doing semantics, and I don't like being around people who do syntax. <laughs> Well, that was pretty definite. <laughs> Sherry? Well, I guess I'm going to have to agree with Trey this time because it's syntax for me. Okay, but there is one thing I like about syntax, and I'm just going to get that over with first so then I can complain about it without attracting any more karma than I have to, right? So I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge it's good part, which is it's really fun to say, what did you see the man who bought? I love saying that. I think it's really fun to say. It's really fun to say that fast in front of a new group of students and watch them all go, oh, wow. Kind of, you know, that is fun. So I do like that part. But the thing that makes me deeply uneasy about syntax is that if you give me 45 minutes and a room full of students, I can convince them that they think that's grammatical. <laughs> you, just, you slowly give them other sentences, you think, and, and they say, well, that's sort of grammatical. Yeah, no, yeah, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then by the end of the hour, they're marking, they're, all the stars are completely gone. And then you can do anything you want because that's data then, right? I've created the set of infinitely available data. And so I can say anything I want with it. And then the worst, worst part about syntax is honestly, they are some of the worst presenters in the whole entire world. <laughs> They'll get up there with their little paper and they'll read their little paper. And I always think, oh, I'm going to determinedly and with all humility, try really hard to understand what they're saying. And I'll try and try. And then they'll say things like, as you can clearly see, my data in A6 to F49 clearly support my hypothesis. Unlike the single counter example in M52, which is a small counter example. But then if we go from M53 to Z614, just read those data or don't because you don't have time. And you can clearly see that I'm right. And that just makes me insane. I hate that. <laughs> and they all act like I'm an idiot because I haven't read all 5,000 examples in their handout and follow their argument. And I know where those examples came from because I told you that my students can think, what did you see? The man who bought his grammatical. So I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And I don't like it. And I feel sort of angry about it all the time. <laughs> I think you've sort of pointed out that sociolinguistics trumps syntax in a way. What happens is that you use something in an authoritative way and by fiat, you make it to be grammatical. Yeah. You know, and over the course of a certain amount of time, you can train other people using your sociolinguistic leverage there as the professor. That's right. Or they feel sorry for me. I don't know quite which one it is, but whichever one it is, <laughs> it doesn't it really matter. Works. It doesn't matter. It works. 
<laughs> I like to think of it as rehabilitation of the data. <laughs> <laughs> it is a kinder, gentler way. Yeah. Bill? I had trouble with this because most of the time it's not that I dislike a subdiscipline. It's that I dislike some flavors of a subdiscipline. And so, unlike you, Keith, I don't dislike phonology because phonology turns data into cooperative data. <laughs> and it, re- so, it rehabilitates it. It rehabilitates it. And also, I have to admit, if you're not very good at picking up on fine phonetic details, phonology is really friendly (laughs) because all the fine phonetic details have been removed from it. (laughs) Not just removed, abstracted away. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Um, Made it to something more flighty. Like countries in the 70s, what happened to the dissidents? Well, they were abstracted. (laughs) (laughs) Abstracted. (laughs) There are types of syntax that I am not particularly exercised about. But on the other hand, a lot of syntax is interesting. I think the one field that I kind of like, but the name turns it into something I don't, is semantics. Because the minute you call it semantics, Mm. what you're typically talking about is something that's sort of elegant and algebraic, but not really how language works, I think. And so you say semantics and that the way the word's been defined, that immediately starts creating some boundaries around what you're going to talk about that may or may not be the boundaries that should be there. And I'm more interested in asking if they're really there or not than just accepting them. But then sooner or later, you're going to head towards Lambda Calculus. (laughs) And I don't trust that stuff. Okay, it's like, once you let one lambda in, they keep adding more. (laughs) It just keeps going. I just don't trust it. There's a solid layer of unscientific suspicion here. (laughs) You let young people get up to things with lambda calculus, you don't know what they're going to do with it. (laughs) So I prefer whatever the modern term is for messy semantics. And I would call it semiotics, but literary critics got a hold of that and did something weird to it. (laughs) And I don't trust that either. I think it's got lambdas in it. (laughs) (laughs) So you just have trust issues then. Sounds like. (laughs) Well, you know, if you translated lambda into another language, then you might find out what it really is, and then you'd know what it is, and then you'd know whether you really wanted to be with it or not. Try Greek, for example. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but that's the whole translation thing. (laughs) The minute you buy into direct translation, you've already bought into semantics. (laughs) It's got you. It's got you. It's like, oh, it's just a translation function that maps this set onto that set. (laughs) Using lambda calculus. Right. And then the next minute, it's going to be giant robots. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. I knew it would get back to the giant robots. (laughs) They're probably giant French-speaking robots, too. (laughs) They're probably already here. They're just very small. (laughs) Very small, giant robots. <laughs> well, you can't tell unless there's a very small, normal robot next to it. <laughs> <sighs> That's the kind of thing that I think would make a semanticist kill themselves. 
<laughs> what is the meaning of the very small giant robot next to the very small normal robot? <laughs> it would be nice if we have these subdisciplines of linguistics that we don't like. If we did have some kind of repellent like that that we could use. <laughs> like, I don't know what it would be for syntax because you can't just say, what did you see the man who bought? Because they all like that. So I think they do anyway. Hmm. Uh, no, I think you have to use other subdisciplines. So you use phonology Ooh. to repel syntacticians. Well, Trey showed how we can use sociolinguistics to repel to syntax, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Psycholinguistics seems to repel a lot of syntacticians. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, certain, certain magical invocations that repel certain other people. So, you know, functionalism is one that uh, only takes the one word to repel certain audiences. Mm. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got to share some of our prejudices, and we know you have some of your own. Feel free to call in and share them with us next time on Language Made Difficult. And that's all the time we have for this episode of Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we discuss how to lose that excess syllable weight by toning up your vowels. Did you really just say that? <laughs> I sure did. Come okay. on. That was gold. We're going to just share from our heart our least favorite subdiscipline, right? <laughs> <laughs> You are averring that I made up something on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that you could have made up something. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. Really, he wouldn't. I'm Trey Jones, and this linguistics... Te- I'm still Trey Jones, and I still can't talk. From a taqueria in Tlachito... Uh, in Tlachito... Uh, I, I could... <laughs> you can't even say that word. I could say it 15 times earlier today. I don't know. I'm tired. Your neighbors, Keith... I mean, I mean, Trey, wherever you people are. I think that should be our theme word from now on. <laughs> smoosh. We could just start every episode. Let's all just say smoosh together or smoosh, <laughs> however you pronounce it. So it was a moment of unity wrecked by a giggle. <laughs> it would have been a beautiful thing.